chapter one, chapter one, verse one, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimron, Jokshan, Midan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashuram, Letushim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephur, Hanak, Abida, and Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in a cave at Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. And Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, uh, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedur, Ab- Adbil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tima, Jetur, Nafish, and Kedima. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names, by their villages and by their encampments. Twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt, in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word to us, and we pray that, uh, that you would just help us, that you would guide us in your word, and that you would show us everything that you would have uh, for us this morning. We know that that is a work that only you can do, and so we pray for that. Would you help us and would you guide us? And it's in Jesus' name we ask and pray. Amen. What are you going to do the moment you realize you're breathing your last breath? Some indigenous populations of Mexico deal with it by throwing a festivity that has been around for 3,000 years or so known as Dia de los Muertos, or for my gringos in the room, uh, Day of the Dead. The idea and belief behind Dia de los Muertos is that after, we, after um, the person has died, the spirits of those loved ones are allowed to join the living to commune with them for over two days in November. So what people on earth do is they leave toys and skulls made of candy for the kids that have have passed on. Um, And for adults, they leave their favorite possessions, foods, um, and even alcoholic beverages uh, on these elaborate homemade altars called ofrendas, which should look a little something like this. Um, So they show their loved ones that they have not forgotten them. But why is this important? Because smaller sections of the Mexican population think that once the spirit is gone, once the spirit is forgotten, then it's gone forever. Once the spirit uh, was forgotten on earth, he was no longer alive at all. The spirit was just gone. While other sections of the Mexican population, uh, they believe that the spirits are still alive in the afterlife, but that they're just sad and vengeful ghosts who, like, they get really angry and they cause you to have food poisoning and stuff like that. Um, So they just get really mad at you. Think of an angry ghost. Uh, But overall, Dia de Muertos is a cultural way to deal with the biggest challenge of life, death. 
And it does so by celebrating the dead and showing the spirit of those loved ones that they have not been forgotten. However, the question must be asked, what if a loved one is forgotten? What if a loved one is forgotten while they're in the afterlife? Like, legitimately, what's going to happen? Because there's not a whole lot of clarity on what happens if you're forgotten. But either way, it sounds really sad. What this specific cultural belief leads to, then, is men and women doing everything they can to make sure they will be remembered so that their afterlife will be a happy one. That is where their hope lies. If we're honest, though, it isn't just exclusive to those indigenous populations of Mexico. Us here in Forney, Kaufman County, uh, the whole suburban metroplex, USA, we're, we're all influenced by a similar idea in some way. Live a good life. Do things right. Do more good than bad. Have a long list of good deeds, a short list of bad deeds. Be a good person. And if we do those things, then we'll have a happy afterlife. What goes around comes back around. Ooh, girl, don't do that. You'll get bad karma. After all, only good Christians make it, right? So our thinking then becomes we must be as good or as popular or as generous or as amazing or as whatever as we can be to make sure that God will be happy with us so that we can have that happy afterlife. So that we can make sure that we aren't an unhappy ghost who makes people sick. And if we're honest, our hope sometimes lies in us being remembered as a good man or a good woman more than being remembered at the judgment seat. But here's the truth. It's a terrible way to deal with death. There has to be a better way. Because what if I'm not the most popular? What if I'm not the most generous or rich or kind or loving or amazing or funny or famous? What if I don't have a good life full of good choices and good deeds? What about now? What do I do with my death at that point? No one is going to remember me after a few generations. I cannot seem to be good enough. There has to be a better way to deal with death for me. I am, at most, a sinful sinner who needs help. What do we do? The good news from Genesis 25 is that there is a better way to deal with our own death. There is a hope that doesn't depend anything on you and I. Uh, there is a better way to deal with our death that will leave us with complete and full and everlasting joy and we find this through the narrative of the death of Abraham. What we're going to see is just three truths um, about Abraham's death and the events surrounding it that we can use that are going to help us deal with our own death when it comes. Knowing that we do not have to worry about being the most loved or the most remembered or the best person, but it's better to be known by God and loved by him and be the least memorable person on the earth. The, the three things are we give all we have, we remember our gathering, and we know that God's plan continues. We give all we have. We remember our gathering. And we know that God's plan continues. We give, all that we, have, we give all that God has given us and we pass it on to those coming after us through discipleship um, that the blessing of God may continue more and more from different people, from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. We remember the fact that we will one day be gathered up to our people in heaven who are waiting for us, our friends and our loved ones. They do not come to us. And three, we know that God's plan of redemption and salvation will continue even after we're gone. So let's take a look at the first step to dealing with our deaths. 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 Take a look at verse one. Before we get going with it, let's just do a quick overview of Abraham's life in this faith. It all began in chapter 12 
um, where God calls a 75-year-old man who was at the time worshiping the moon, um, and he calls him to leave his home and everything he has ever known to, to a land that is not yet his and to bear an offspring that, will, that he will not see for over 25 years. But this call is important for all of us to see if we're believers because we're a part of it. The call from Genesis 12 is, and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. There is a blessing of salvation that every human being longs for even if we do not realize it. But there's something deep down in all of us that longs for a hope and that hope comes to us through this call to Abraham. Through the work that God does, the same blessing spoken of in Genesis chapter 12, roughly 4,000 years ago, is the same one that you and I have if we are believers. Over a century has passed since this call. We've gone through 13 chapters. We've seen Abraham mess up royally. We've seen him drag his family through his sin. We've seen his family sin against him and against God. We've seen bold stances of faith in his prayers for people. Um, and his courage to stand before nations mightier than him and more powerful than his nation that are just dwelling in a tent. And all along, God has been faithful to Abraham despite Abraham and his family getting it wrong so many times. We've seen that faith is 100% a work that God does in us, otherwise we would jack it up. Faith is a gift from God so that none of us have anything to boast in except for Jesus. But now our boy's a little older His wife, the one he loved deeply, passed away about 35 years ago now. His son Isaac, the offspring that God had promised the little baby, he's 75. Uh, So Abraham's old. He's feeling his age. And we've come now to the point in the narrative where it's time for Abraham to die. And we see that faith means death. Faith does not keep us from an earthly death. That part of life remains. But how does Abraham handle it? First, he does so by giving all that he has while he's still alive. Look at verse 1. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashuram, Letushim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. So God mentions these names on purpose um, so that we might see these as legit offspring as well. Uh, so they're part of the divine narrative, but at the end of, of Ishmael's lineage, as you see at the bottom of the verses, at the end of it, verse 18, uh, it says, like, he's going to be his, against his family forever. Ishmael and all of his descendants are going to be against the rest of the family. It does not say that with these children. Uh, so they are not the one who, through whom Jesus will eventually come through the ultimate blessing, um, but they're not any lesser. They're still part of the story. Uh, These are just as much Abraham's offspring and part of God's blessing reaching more and more people. In fact, one of the names, Midian, he ends up going to start a nation of his own where the guy who's writing Genesis, Moses, um, he he ends up spending 40 years of his life there and he finds his wife there. Uh, So we see that Abraham begins dealing with his own death before his death even happens because in verse five, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. My first question was, okay, the math isn't adding up here. You gave all that you had, but then you also gave, like that doesn't really make sense to me. Um, But the answer comes from the original language of Hebrew in that Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, meaning things that were imperishable. 
so you can give your son land or the character trait of honesty or hard work or probably from this passage, like what he gave him was his faith. Um, those cannot be taken from you. Those cannot die. Um, but the gifts he gave to his other son, they meant more along the lines of riches and cattle and stuff like that. He cares for all of his sons, but he passes on all that he knew as far as faith to Isaac um, since he knew that God had a huge plan dealing with Isaac. Um, in a lot of ways, Isaac gets the worst deal. He essentially gets no riches, no cattle. It's like, thanks, Dad. <laughs> um, but in any case, Abraham provides for each of his sons exactly what they needed to carry on without him. And interestingly, Abraham does it all while he's still living. He didn't wait until he died to benefit his children. He used what he had to bring joy to others while he was still living. But why? Why not wait? Why does Abraham give all that he has? Why not spend it all and go crazy down at the boats in Shreveport? Probably because that's a long drive. Why not live it up and waste it all away? Why not hoard it all and be buried with it like Pharaoh? Because part of the cultural norm was to give an inheritance as a way of paying their children for their sin. Uh, all of Abraham's children will be greatly impacted by his sin, and an inheritance was a way to cover that. Uh, so Abraham knows that in order to cover the stain of his sin, which we've seen over the past 13 chapters, um, it's going to be costly. So he's like, yep, I'm giving everything I've got because that's going to be a big inheritance to have to cover all of that. But it's a really bad system because how much money would a murderer need? How much cattle or all the gifts? Like, what about the worst person on the earth? How much inheritance would they have to have? Um, recently, the news brought a story to light of the legacy of one man when 49 prisoners in New York State traced their lineage back to the same man. His name was Max Jukes. Jukes' descendants included seven murderers, 60 thieves, 50 women of debauchery, 130 other convicts, and 310 people in extreme poverty. What about this poor guy? Like, we don't know anything about his life other than what his other, like his kids look like, but what sort of inheritance would he have needed to cover all of that, to cover the, the sin of, of his life? The truth of the matter is that we cannot outgive sin in any sort of inheritance. There's not enough gold and silver in the world to cover the stain of our sin. There's only one covering good enough. First Peter 1 verse 18 says, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So we see it's because of Jesus' blood that we now pass on all that we have as an inheritance. We're not covering up for anything. Jesus gave all, and then we give all. We do not have to give it all to uh, because Jesus couldn't do it. And so we see our first step of how to handle our own death. We give all that we have as an inheritance. Why? Because Jesus gave all to become our inheritance. So we have everything to give and him to gain. Truly and simply, how we do this practically um, is in our discipleship. Before he left, Jesus uh, he gave the great commission, which is go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. So our faith cannot simply mean going to church, getting filled up by God's word, going to discipleship groups to, even, to get even more filled and going to an event to get even more filled and that's it. That's gluttony. Faith means making disciples. 
Faith means grabbing a man or a woman whom God has put in your life and saying, let's read the Bible together. Like, let's talk about how our life is going. Let's talk about how we can grow in our obedience toward what we're reading. Let's confess our sins to each other. It's going to be awkward and weird and sometimes slow at points. But after consistent showing up and growing together and giving each other the grace that you need, you have two men or two women who are following Jesus by faith and obeying the Great Commission, and that will be God-glorifying in an amazing way. But this also means that if you are not being discipled, go grab that man or woman that you respect, that you love, and say, you there, disciple me. And then you just disciple them into discipling you, so that works. Um, But we obey God to give everything we have through discipleship. So who are you discipling? Who's discipling you? Who could do these things? Because there is obedience and there is sin. But this obedience leads to joy. But that's only the first step of handling our death with full and complete joy. The second is to remember our gathering to our people. If you look at verse 7. These are the days of the years. These, these are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. So gathered to his people has a sense of like a literal burial um, with all of his people that he buried in his cave, in his land. Um, but the verb has a sense of the eternal gathering of together, of his family and him being together in eternity. Um, And this is really helpful for our biblical view of heaven and what it will be like because heaven is honestly just a mind-blowing idea. Um, So God just gave us a little bite-sized portion. Uh, What's what's it gonna be like? We will be gathered to the righteous. Other believers in our family that have passed away, our friends, those we loved, it's quite the opposite of um, the movie Coco. Have you guys seen that one? I reference Disney a lot, so I apologize. I just love Disney. Um, but it's quite the opposite of Coco. The, just in the, on the Dia, of, Dia de Muertos, the Day of the Dead, they would come back to spend time with their family. But no, we're going to them. <clears throat> uh, they don't come here. We will be gathered to our people in perfection, not measly earth. But this also means that we have an identity. This exact phrasing happens here in Genesis 35, 49, Numbers 20, Judges 2.10, and then the last one in 2 Samuel 12, when David's infant dies, David confidently says, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. David evidently expected to see that child again, not just a nameless, faceless soul without an identity, but a very child, his very child. In the New Testament, Jesus makes a similar but even more definite description. In Matthew 8, he says, Many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And then a few chapters later, Moses and Elijah appeared with Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's been centuries since Moses and Elijah were taken, Elijah was taken to heaven, Moses died, um, and they still maintained a clear identity. So this is crazy. We're going to recognize people we've never met. All the redeemed will maintain their identity forever, but in a perfected form. 
We will be able to have fellowship with Abraham, Isaac, Sarah, Lot. We're going to ask them all of the questions like, hey, what did you end up doing that for? Or what happened during this time of your life? What was going on, man? Um, But in everybody else too, Noah, Samuel, Moses, Joshua, Esther, Daniel, David, Peter, Paul, or any other person who we could think of that was redeemed and saved by God, we will be reunited not only with our own families and our loved ones, but also with the people of God from all ages. In heaven, we will all be one loving family. But this also brings up the fact that not everyone's going to be there. Not every loved one, not every friend, not every family member. Matthew 7, verse 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. If we do not know God, there is only one way to do so through faith in Jesus Christ. If if you personally have any questions about this, please grab me after or grab the person sitting next to you, in front of you, behind you. Um, Just say, you there, disciple me. Comes back. Um, But here's the truth. Not everyone will be there when we're gathered to our people. So that means that point one is more important to our mission than ever. Why was the commission from Jesus to go and make disciples of all nations called the Great Commission? Because by it, by men and women discipling one another, there are more and more men and women who are on mission from God to see more and more people in heaven to be gathered to. This is why men and women risk their lives in unreached areas of the globe to proclaim the gospel and disciple in regions of the world that are hostile to Christians. It's a call from God. They get, they understand the whole call of there's, there are going to be people there that aren't, or there, there, are going, there are going to be people that are not in heaven if I do not go. But there's a comfort that we have if we are believers that we're going to be gathered to our people. Why would we stand by and never say a word to the people around us who do not know that comfort? Who may never be gathered to another righteous men and women in the presence of God. Who are only on a wide path to eternal destruction. Heaven will be perfect. But part of that perfection is the people that we're going to be gathered to. Abraham was gathered to his people and part of his people were men and women who were impacted directly by his discipleship and friendship and relationships with those around him. This is what comforts us. When I was a kid, um, I would just have internal anxiety attacks uh, every morning on the way to school because I'm like, oh, I don't want to go to school. Plus, like in the winter, my dad always turned the, the heat on so hot and I was always bundled up because I'm a little kid going to school. Um, and it's like, Man, Dad, you got to turn the heat off. I had my face pressed against the window. Uh, but so I, I would be super nervous because I wanted to look cool. I wanted to get all the good grades and all that. Uh, but you know what never once gave me an anxiety attack? Knowing that I was going home. We must remember where we are going when we think of our death. Death is a terrible and lonely reality when that's all that there is. But there is a community awaiting you and I in, in eternity if we believe. That's joy. 
So we deal with death by giving all we have, by knowing that we will be gathered to our people. And lastly, we deal with death by remembering that God's plan continues. Look at verse 9. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites, the very first piece of land of the promised land that God has promised him. Uh, There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. So remember God's call Remember Abraham's call from God that he's going to bless him and those who bless him. He's now shifting over this main job to Isaac. The Genesis 12 plan of the blessing of salvation being passed on to all the nations, every tongue, every tribe, it still goes on. This is just yet again a huge part of point one. Um, If in our lives we have discipled and been discipled, uh, we will see a great lineage and legacy of discipleship and of blessing and of salvation of people all around, even far after we're gone. Like, just think about Abraham right now. You and I are part of his legacy. His death was the end for him here on earth, but he's, he's with his people up there. And people on earth are still being impacted by his legacy. It keeps going with Isaac, and it's God's work on their behalf. Just look at the rest of verse 11. And Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. And this is important because if you look back up to verse 6, um, it says, talking about the, uh, the other sons that, with Isaac, and while he was still living, Abraham, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. So this is God's work. It sounds kind of rude, like, oh, you're expelling all of your other sons to be away from your one son. Um, but this is exactly what God does. And it's kind of just him moving them to a bunch of different areas. Why? Uh, two specific reasons. The first is for more of God's glory, and the second is for more of the nations. The more people in God's kingdom, the more glory God's get, God gets. And the one thing that God is all about is his own glory. And the more people that are scattered throughout the area, throughout the globe, the more chances for people coming into relationship with Jesus. Uh, So this same thing happened at the Tower of Babel. God scatters them, changes all of their languages, changes all of their faith um, because they were just building this huge tower. But it was the best thing for them and the most glorifying thing for God because of that moment, because of this moment that we're talking about. There are more people in heaven because of it. When a person goes missing, you know what sounds crazy? Hey, we only need one person to stay in one general area forever. Just look right there in that one little spot. That sounds crazy. A search party goes and everybody spreads out and you cover a huge area. Recently, uh, we've gone through a transition as a church where the impossible has happened. We lost 75% of our elders, the lead pastor, but we're still a church. How? God's plan continues. And we're just a part. The call in Genesis 12 is God's call, God's plan. He does not need a human to finish his work. It's not like God was sitting up in heaven saying, oh no, Holy Spirit, I think Abraham's dying. Quick, send Jesus in there. Wasn't freaking out. Wasn't worried. When adversity comes, uh, when trials come, when heartbreak comes, when trying times come, we do exactly what Lorenzo said last week. We keep on trucking. How do we do that? We give all that we have in discipleship. We look forward 
to being gathered to our people. We remember that God's plan will go on and then we're able to deal with our own death. Otherwise, death really is just a horrible, scary reality that has the power to cause us to live our lives just to be remembered. Our hope must lie in Jesus Christ alone. Our hope lies in the fact that Jesus gave all that he had. Jesus gave up perfection in heaven to come down to sinful earth, to dwell with us sinners, to live a perfect life in the face of Satan himself as he was tempted over and over again. He dealt with constant attacks from the enemy. Jesus was accused and condemned even though he had literally done nothing wrong. He was beaten, mocked, scorned. The hair was pulled from his beard. They spat and slapped his face. They beat him with whips, with hooks. They would dig into his skin and pull the skin out. Jesus took the brunt of the punishment in that moment that you and I deserved in our sin to give you and I the blessing of the perfect life that he lived. The call to believe, the call to discipleship, they are not heavy and burdensome in this regard. They are light, momentary, for the moment, but joy and happiness and perfection will mark our lives forever with our family. Abraham gave all that he had. He died, and God's plan continues to this day, all to the point, uh, all to point to the true and better Abraham and Jesus. Just like Jesus gave all that he had to you and I as an inheritance, as the covering of our sins, and he died ultimately so that you and I would not have to. And now God's plan continues through faith by the work of the Holy Spirit that we receive upon belief, all because of Jesus this is true. And just like Isaac was to receive an inheritance of the land of the first piece of the promised land, you and I receive an inheritance from our Father. We will see the promised land of heaven in full because of the life, death, and ultimate resurrection of Jesus. First Peter 1, verse 3, says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the better way to deal with our death. This is heaven. This is the better Jesus who redeems not only our lives, but even the worst part of our human reality, our deaths. And at the end of our lives, we will either be well-loved and remembered and cherished by humans only, and we will die a final death like in Coco, 
or we will be well loved and remembered and cherished by a loving father and we will never taste or see death. When we breathe our last breath, when that moment comes, we have a hope. Because when Jesus breathed his last, it was for us. So, as a picture of that day, when we are all gathered together as believers, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper together. So if you are a part of this family by faith, the only way in, then you're welcome to the table. If you are not a believer and you have not yet been adopted into this family, or if you are in unrepentant sin, then I ask that you remain in your seat on the basis of 1 Corinthians that says you eat and drink in an unworthy manner. But if this is you, the grace and hope of Jesus Christ is available to you today. You do not have to do anything but turn from your sin to believe in Jesus Christ. You will still sin afterward. None of us believers are perfect. That's the way it is. We will always and forever need Jesus. So believe today. Turn today. And for all of us, uh, this is our prayer. Father, we confess that we are not good disciples or disciplers. We confess that we need this body and this blood to live this life. Would you, by your grace, help us to do what you have called us to today? Would you continue your, Gen your Genesis 12 plan through us? Allow our hope to lie here in Jesus. Death is a heavy and confusing part of reality. But we do not have to strive to be remembered. We do not have to strive to have a lifelong list of good deeds. We do not have to live a sinless life. All of these are impossible on our own, but the reality of the gospel is that we have all of this through Jesus. We are remembered by Jesus. How do we know? Because we have a hope in Jesus, because all of these things were given over to us as believers on the night when he was betrayed and he took bread when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. That we do not have to live a life where we are remembered, where things went well for us all the time, where we had the best life now. But that what really matters is that we remember you. We remember the work of, the, of, the, of everything that you have done for us and on our behalf in your life, your death on the cross, and your burial and resurrection. God, would you help us to remember that work? Would you let our hearts cry out and know for a fact it is finished? And when our final breath does come, would you be with us? Would you do what you have promised 
and never let us taste or see death. We thank you again for the gospel and for Jesus. And it's through him we pray.